Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, if public transportation was free, would more people give up the single passenger car? We speak to three experts who also ride pricey metro trains in D.C. What do you tell a single mom who's got to take her kids to daycare uh, and then get herself to work? There are times when transit is not a viable option because we haven't invested in the infrastructure to make it convenient for that person. And we caught up with filmmaker Michael Moore before the D.C. premiere of his new movie, Fahrenheit 11.9. I think it's a very dangerous situation. We have a president who has no ideology, doesn't believe in anything other than Donald J. Trump. That's his belief system, what's good for him. That's a dangerous person. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. While a successful ballot initiative to raise the wages of tip workers in D.C. is straining the district's polite class divide and sparking a fear over voting rights, only one of the district's eight wards, Ward 3, which is one of the wealthiest and whitest, did not vote to approve Initiative 77 when it passed in June, but proponents of the measure say those no votes were enough to press the D.C. Council to consider overturning the measure approved by 55% of the voters. Chantel James has more. Many restaurant workers and their supporters held a vigil with Restaurant Opportunity Centers United at the John A. Wilson Building downtown as a hearing was held on Initiative 77 this Monday. Initiative 77 guarantees wage earners $15 an hour plus tips and was voted in by a majority of D.C. voters this June. The D.C. City Council has introduced a bill to overturn the initiative. Troop D was one of those holding vigil. I recently had a colleague break down at work because she was at work standing there for three hours having no patrons come through the door. The economic anxiety and instability of being a tipped industry worker caused her to lose stable housing. She had to put all her stuff in storage. And only learned like that very day that she wasn't going to make any money the same day that she needed to pay her storage fees. Otherwise, they were going to auction her belongings off. And perhaps all of these people in the opposition are very lucky and very blessed to not be in a position where they're worried about how they're going to get their next meal, where they're going to be sleeping that night. I have colleagues that aren't don't have those luxuries. They are coming to work and they're, they haven't eaten that day because they haven't earned enough money. And yet, they're expected to show up to work, paste a smile on their face, and pretend that everything in their world is okay because they need to earn that tip. At a hearing lasting from the morning well into the night, more than 200 witnesses, many from the restaurant industry, testified before the city council to argue for the right to a living wage and to stand against the council's undemocratic attempt 
to overturn the will of the majority who voted in Initiative 77. Raymond Blanks was one of such concerned citizens, and he contextualizes this council's move in U.S. history during his testimony. When it comes to initiatives related to voting, hands off. You should not touch a person's right to vote. When you look at the history of voting in America, it started off with wealthy white men. Then they eventually extended it to white men. Then after the Civil War, they gave black men the right. A hundred years later, they gave white ladies the right. And then in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was enacted. We can see that the voting was directly related to the maintenance of power by a specific group. The city council must now consider this testimony as they mark up Bill 22913, which would overturn Initiative 77 if passed, and the bill will then move on to two votes in its revised state. From downtown D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Now, the right to housing and health care is also drawing crowds to rallies and town halls targeting what organizers say is the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church. On Sunday, residents of four buildings owned by the Catholic Church rallied outside the National Basilica in Northeast D.C. to protest the sale of their buildings without notice to land developers. And in July, Ascension, the largest nonprofit health system in the United States and the world's largest Catholic health system, announced plans to close acute care services at Providence Hospital, which it owns. If this closure moves forward, It will exacerbate an existing medical crisis and leave just one hospital for the entire eastern portion of D.C. Providence is a 238-bed hospital providing inpatient care to thousands of people each year. It has seen the use of its emergency room grow nearly 26% in recent years. According to a statement from the National Nurses United, Ascension's intention to close acute care services at Providence Hospital marks just the latest action stripping the east side of D.C. of much-needed medical services. Last year, Ascension closed Providence's labor and delivery unit, even as D.C. was ground zero for a maternal mortality crisis, with African-American women dying at a higher rate than pregnant women anywhere else in the nation. The Reverend Grayland Hagler said the proposed closing will exacerbate unequal health access in D.C. So the whole eastern side of the city uh, ends up losing another hospital uh, that has provided care. I mean, Providence Hospital came into being right at the beginning of the Civil War, 1861. So it's had a presence in this city since 1861. But really, the fact that it's talking about closing is really an attack upon the poor and on the indigent in our, in our communities. A coalition of nurses, doctors, clergy, and healthcare advocates are fighting the closure of the hospital, disputing that Providence is losing money for Ascension, which paid its CEO, Anthony Tersigny, a compensation package of $17.6 million in 2015.
And now for international news, I'm joined by on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, there's so much happening again this week. And I guess we want to start with the renewed or heightened sanctions against China. It's of major concern. Both the New York Times and the Washington Post have had stories in the last few days suggesting that a new Cold War is erupting this time between China and the United States. Uh, Mr. Trump obviously is upping the ante. I hope he's considering the impact on the farmers who voted for him, particularly the soybean farmers who have been selling their product to China. There is concern in Washington right now that despite the pain that it might inflict on China itself, China may halt or dump purchases of U.S. Treasury bills, which are used for financing everything from the Pentagon to the post office. My own worry is that in keeping my thumb on the pulse of black America, I'm continually hearing this line that suggests that China is the new colonialist in Africa. When you combine that with the cheerleading in the Congressional Black Caucus about the so-called Russiagate story, it's of major concern that black Americans may be in the vanguard, believe it or not, in terms of bringing on a new Cold War. I don't think they've thought this through. I hope that they're listening to African leaders such as Cyril Ramaphosa and President Buhari of Nigeria, who reject the idea of China as the new colonialist in Africa. And in any case, that brings us to a wider issue, which is that over a century ago, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about double consciousness amongst black Americans, that is to say, being rooted here in North America, yet being of African descent. I think it's well past time to talk, when we talk about foreign policy, of black Americans engaging in single consciousness trying to coordinate our foreign policy with the foreign policy of independent Africa and the independent Caribbean nations. I saw one news report that talked about how the purchaser for the Chinese defense is being sanctioned for purchasing Russian, you know, military like weaponry. And I just thought that was so odd because it it kind of harkened back to that time earlier this year when Trump sounded like a, a arms salesman out, you know, hawking American wares uh, for like Lockheed Martin. So uh, I guess that's part of this new Cold War strategy. Well, it is. The story that you're making reference to is part of this mercantilist foreign policy of Washington. That is to say, reprimanding Berlin for buying natural gas from Russia because the United States wants Berlin to buy natural gas from the United States. Uh, Reprimanding uh, other nations for seeking to buy Iranian oil because the United States is a major producer of oil and they want these countries like India to buy U.S. oil. And now, It's interesting that that same missile defense system that China is seeking to buy, the United States is reprimanding Turkey for seeking to buy the same system because they want Turkey to buy a similar product from the United States of America. Uh, This is the not-so-hidden agenda involved. Well, uh, speaking of war and rumors of war, there was a very hawkish uh, focus on Iran this week. Here in D.C., Medea Benjamin interrupted a, a State Department official's speech of giving a very hawkish speech against Iran. And uh, I suppose uh, the Security Council 
will have the same type of treatment happening. Well, as you know, uh, in a few days, Mr. Trump will be presiding over the Security Council and giving a major speech at the United Nations. We all expect Iran to be a major target of his remarks. Tightened sanctions on Iran are expected within weeks. And as noted, that will uh, serve to try to prevent nations like India from buying Iranian oil. I should also say that there's a major question as to whether or not the European Union will go along with these tightened sanctions. If they do not, that will be a very important signal to Washington that perhaps they should restrain the hotheads at the State Department. In any case, uh, this is part and parcel of this idea that the United States should be able to dictate to the rest of the world how they should conduct their business. We mentioned Africa earlier, and I really don't like to have a show without mentioning Yemen and the ongoing atrocities there uh, because of the Saudi bombing, the U.S.-backed Saudi bombing. The situation there just seems to get worse and you know, by the day, and there's no... There doesn't seem to be any relief being provided by the U.S. or the U.K. Well, I would urge the activist community to not only focus on Saudi Arabia and focus on the United States when trying to understand what's going on in Yemen in terms of the horrors that are being inflicted on the people there. I would also like to focus on the United Arab Emirates, which is playing a malign role in Yemen in conjunction with the Saudis. And in fact, if you look at what's going on in that entire uh, Red Sea Basin area, you'll see that the United Arab Emirates are playing a very important role and not necessarily a positive role. For example, uh, with regard to the conflict that had been in place between Eritrea and Ethiopia up until quite recently, it was well known that the United Arab Emirates was helping to bolster forces in Eritrea that were opposed to an entente with Ethiopia. So once again, I would like to urge the activist community to start putting the UAE in the spotlight. Well, I know it's it's on this side of the of the world and you know right now DC is roiling with this Kavanaugh nomination, but you know there are still echoes of the Bob Woodward book uh, about the Trump administration and the ongoings there, the turmoil there. So I think that you recently had a chance to to check out the book. What what What's your take on it? Well, I agree with those who challenge the journalistic ethics of Bob Woodward, because it's clear that if you give him an interview, you'll be treated kindly. And if you don't give him an interview, he'll probably slam you. Uh, it's clear that uh, Steve Bannon, the former strategist of the Trump team, was a major source for this book, and he's treated rather benignly. Same for Roger Porter, the White House staff secretary, who you may recall was forced out because of allegations of spousal abuse and domestic abuse. Despite that horrendous claim that led to his resigning, he's treated kindly, too. And those who don't give him interviews are slammed. But the overriding point that I would like to bring to the audience is that Mr. Woodward not only portrays Mr. Trump as being erratic and, quote, a moron, unquote, according to former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, but it's also striking to note that Mr. Woodward 
doesn't seem to give too much credence to the Russiagate story. I don't think that's come across in the press, and I'm not sure, once again, if that has anything to do with the fact that apparently Bob Mueller, the special counsel, did not give him an interview, and so therefore he's dismissing Bob Mueller's work. I'm not really clear on why Mr. Woodward took that particular point of view. Okay, well, that investigation and everything about the Trump White House continues to bring new revelations each week. So I'm sure there'll be more to talk about in weeks to come. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. You make making food that doesn't help. It actually hurts us. That food is killing us, but it makes money. You know what I mean? That television show is hurting us, but it makes money. This music is killing us. It's rotting us, but it makes money. That's the system we live in. That goes for any any industry. You can look at it and go, that's not helping the world. But it's making money. We caught up with filmmaker Michael Moore earlier this week. This is what he had to say at the premiere of his movie, Fahrenheit 11.9. There's a lot more of us than there are of them. We're going to win every single time. So they got to find ways to stay in charge because there's so few of them. It's an amazing trick they pull off, isn't it? How much they control of our country when there are so few of them. In a democracy, that shouldn't happen. In democracy, we should be the ones telling them what to do, not the other way around. And you said that Van Stefani, pop singer, was the reason why he tried. Uh, he decided to... Well, I explained in the film that he found out that a woman at NBC on another show was making more money than him. And you know how the Donald Trump brain works. A woman is making more money than me. Anyone is making more money than me. And so he blew up and he came up with a crazy plan to show NBC how famous and popular he was uh, by announcing for president. And, and then they would get the, the gist and, and give him more money and he'd stay on The Apprentice. So you think that a, a pop star was the reason why he decided? He was not, she wasn't the reason, but he, she's the reason in the sense that she was a woman. Mm-hmm. That's, her, that's the first strike against her in Trump's brain. And the second strike was that she was making more than him. Because you know you're supposed to be making less than us. You do know that, right? That is the way we've set up the system, right? That's the system he likes. He likes it that way. Doesn't like that. Finds out the woman's making more money. You let one of them start making more money, it's all downhill after that. In his brain, that's that's kind of what's going on. And how big is his influence on pop culture and movie culture in America? His? In, in your opinion. Well, he that, that's a beloved show. People love that show. Um, people on the coast don't understand that, but in the middle of the country, people love that show. Because every week, they got to watch him fire the douchebag. You know, and it's kind of like... Everybody works with that douchebag. What if you could say to them, you're fired, right? And so you got to watch the show every week and you got to watch the douchebag in the office getting fired. And it was cathartic. People liked the show. But, but, but people on the coast don't watch the show that much. It was more in, it's where, we, where I live, you know. We like The Bachelorette, too. Do you watch The Bachelorette? You don't, do you? And how is this movie different from other movies and how shows? How is this movie what, different? Yeah, it's from in, what we see about Donald Trump. It's in color. 
and it's mostly in English. Thank you. Hey, Michael Jenny Kurtz with The Hill. Good to see you. You've said that Democrats need to run a beloved figure in 2020 to defeat Trump. Is there any currently serving lawmaker who could defeat Trump in your eyes? No. But most importantly, I am not thinking about 2020. The only election in my mind is November 6, 2018. If we don't fix this now, we may not get to 2020, or we won't get there in the way that we thought we were as a country, with the democracy that we had or used to have. Um, The whittling way of our rights, if there's one national emergency or whatever, the way he'll use that uh, to do whatever he's planning to do, um, I think it's a very dangerous situation. Um, We have a president who has no ideology, doesn't believe in anything other than Donald J. Trump. That's his belief system. What's good for him? That's a dangerous person to have in charge. And and so 2020, Democrats will, you know, have the chance to lose again. They can they can go right up there and try to lose. Um, Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. Have you seen the movie yet? No. Oh, I point this out. So the Republicans have only won the popular vote once since Daddy Bush. 30 years ago, only once have the American people said, in 04, with Sonny Bush, that they wanted a Republican in the White House. They don't want Republicans in the White House. The American people have been very clear since 1980, after 98, that they'd had it with the Republicans, and they wanted Democrats in there. So how do we sit here tonight with absolutely no power? You know, they've got everything. The Republicans have everything, and yet the country doesn't like them. So how is that? I ask that question in the film, and I try to show what's wrong. Do you, are you concerned at all that speaking out so much and being so vocal could backfire and actually drive Republicans or I know, people oppose you to I the know, polls? I know they might, they might see this movie and go, oh, this is, this is exactly... The Clinton campaign did not send Hillary Clinton to Wisconsin and hardly at all to Michigan. And, and so while I was making this film, I asked a number of people in the campaign, why did you do that? And they told me that they were afraid that if we put her out there too much in the Midwest, it'll only encourage the Trump people to come out and vote against her. So I, so in other words, you were afraid of your own candidate? You were you were afraid of the person you're actually running? You're supposed to be behind the person you're running. You're supposed to be proud of the person you're running. Send her everywhere. If you've chosen the right candidate, if you've chosen the wrong candidate, then, well, that's on you. Are there any Republican lawmakers that you appreciate or support? Dwight Eisenhower. He won the war and he built the interstate highway system. No. What do you mean? What do you mean living? Yeah, living, oh. currently serving. Currently and currently serving. Oh, trust me, the Republicans are not serving. They're not serving you and I. They're serving themselves and and the people who fund them. So, no, this is a lost cause. Even John Boehner said it a few weeks ago. There is no Republican Party. There's a Trump Party. Uh, he has totally decimated the Republican Party, and and I think they're going to get their comeuppance in a few weeks. Thank you very much. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. You make a food that doesn't help. It actually hurts us. That food is killing us, but it makes money. You know what I mean? That television show is hurting us, but it makes money. This music is killing us. It's rotting us, but it makes money. That's the system we live in. That goes for any any industry. You can look at it and go, that's not helping the world. But it's making money.
On any given workday, more than 5,000 people board a train here at the Tacoma Park Metro Station in Northwest D.C. This is the last stop on the eastern leg of the Red Line before it heads into Maryland. And the first stop there, of course, is the city of Silver Spring. Everybody riding the train or bus in the D.C. metropolitan area means one less person behind the wheel of a car, contributing to what has been called the worst commuter traffic in the nation. There are also one less person in the typical one-passenger-in-a-car scenario that contributes mightily to carbon emissions that are warming the planet. So, what if Metro was free? Would more people ride what must be some of the most expensive public transportation in the country? Despite rider protests, Metro raised prices in 2017 for trains and buses, while even cutting back some bus service. Unlike New York City, D.C.'s system does not have one flat fare. So if I had to ride during peak hours from the Franconia Springfield Station in Virginia to Shady Grove in Maryland, it would cost $7.50, according to Metro's trip planner on its website. For this segment of D.C. in the era of climate change, we talked to some experts who are also Metro riders for their take on this question, what if Metro was free? I started with Tyson Slocum, Energy Program Director for Public Citizen. There's absolutely no question that if you make access to Metro free, you are going to increase ridership. It's expensive. Washington's Metro, I rely on Metro to commute, and it's not cheap. And for working families, it is, uh, can be a struggle. And, of course, private car ownership, is very expensive for a lot of families and all it takes is one mechanical problem with your car and we see this all the time and it affects the ability of uh, working families to be able to get to work. So there are a lot of challenges and for a long time we have advocated policies that would have the federal government subsidize municipal transit systems to help provide very inexpensive or free access to the metro. And so I do think that if you made it free, say for a trial period of a couple of years, with the plan to try and get more people to take it, you would absolutely see increases in ridership. But this also means that you not only have to provide that subsidy to, you know, reduce the fares, but you're also going to have to increase funding to make sure that the train system is going to run more efficiently. You know, we've seen lots of problems in the D.C. metro system. Uh, we don't have enough trains running at the times when people need it. We have had infrastructure problems. There's no question that we need more funding to address these issues. And, in the United States, we are chronically underfunding our mass transit infrastructure. We leave it up to local or regional governments to uh, foot the bill, and these local and regional governments are struggling uh, with these uh, additional costs. And then the, 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 the crazy thing is we saw this when oil prices were very high a decade ago, um, and if oil prices go back up to $100, that's going to increase um, fuel costs for bus uh, transit systems. And what you often see 
is when gas prices or diesel prices go up, you often see county or municipal transit systems cut back on their bus routes because they can't afford the fuel costs. And that's the exact opposite thing of what we should be doing because when gas prices go up, you know, people with a private car uh, also struggle with high gas prices. It's so amazing you, you mentioned that. I had no idea that municipalities did that. I really noticed how the metro became really packed the last time gas prices went up. I mean, we had crowded platforms and, you know, I started thinking about Japan and how they started using those paddles to kind of push people into the train, you know. So when gas prices go up, I know in this area, at least more people are taking the train. Oh, there's absolutely a correlation between higher gas prices and higher ridership for transit systems. And that's something that we should be promoting. And one of the things that we can do to help ease the financial burden for working families is to reduce the fares uh, for Metro, to encourage more ridership, make it more uh, financially attractive for working families. And that's just unfortunately not been a priority. And I think the reason that public citizen actually was reluctant to formally propose this plan is because we actually met with some of the union representatives who, who represent transit workers, and they were afraid of promoting subsidies for free ridership because they explained to us what happens when those subsidies go away. People are going to want to have continued free access, but the transit system isn't going to be able to afford that because the transit system relies upon those fares to fund, you know, paying its workers and to finance uh, needed capital improvements. And so that's a legitimate worry for the folks representing the workers in a metro system is, yes, we agree with the concept of providing free ridership, but we don't have faith that the government is going to continue to subsidize it. So I think we need to make it a priority in this country that the government has to play a more active role in supporting mass transit, not just for the sustainability of uh, families financially, but for the sustainability of our environment. Because the more people that access mass transit, the less climate change causing emissions that we're going to be emitting. There are all sorts of fundamental benefits of mass transit over individual uh, cars. Even if we start swapping out gasoline-powered cars with electric vehicles, you still aren't addressing the equity issue because, you know, poor people, working uh, families, they're not going to be able to afford these electric vehicles. You've got people that are renting that their landlord isn't going to install electric chargers at their apartment complex. And so you've got a whole bunch of barriers, especially for poor families, to the electric car market. And so we've got to have a focus first on uh, mass transit, and that means we've got to have a collective priority from our government that this has to be what, what we're going to be funding. And I, and I think, Esther, you're absolutely right that a focus on making access to Metro free is a great plan to encourage more ridership and ease the financial burden for so many of our neighbors. 
are continuing to follow breaking news this afternoon about a train derailment. In the 2009 crash, sensors created to prevent the deadly collision reportedly failed. But you could already see the signs. They are out letting people know that there will be no rail service between Silver Spring and Fort Totten. Response for smoke coming from the train, train cars, Ferry North Metro Station. Explosions, rolling shutdowns, and a mid-metro safe track surge this week. Accidents, delays, and other infrastructure issues have plagued D.C.'s metro system. And so these experts who use public transportation agree that even if metro is free, resulting in less people driving cars and lowered car emissions, funding for improved service must be a part of the mix. This week, I also spoke to Barbara Briggs, environmental advocate with the D.C. Climate Coalition, and Scott Williamson, policy analyst with the Center for Climate Strategies. Well, we know that about a quarter of emissions in D.C. come from transport. So all those cars on the road are contributing significantly to the pollution in the city and also to what we're doing in terms of exacerbating global warming and devastating climate change, that if we don't do something about it and try to reach the Paris goals, you know, we'll have more and more climate disruption, sea level rise, hurricanes like we've just seen with Florence, and, you know, medium and longer term disruption that will not be good for our communities. So what we need to do is get cars off the road, both for the health of D.C. citizens and for long-term concern about preserving an environment that's, that's good for human communities and the ecosystem. The next thing I want to ask you is we have this expense, but at the same time, D.C.'s metro system, I've seen rated online as either the best or one of the best in the nation, but expensive. So what do we know about the cost factor in terms of people's choice to make this expensive investment or to drive and to maintain a car versus taking public transportation? And so there is a significant cost there, but at the same time, you know, the, the calculus that people go through when they decide whether they're going to drive or take transit tends to think about not just the out-of-pocket cost, but the time that a trip will take, the availability of transit, whether they're anywhere near it, um, the reliability of that service, which has been a real problem for Metro in the last couple of years, uh, and and many other factors that, that give them, you know, an overall picture of whether this service is going to meet their needs. It, it doesn't just come down to the fare, however the fare is important. And Barbara, when we were we're just kind of preparing for the talk. You you mentioned like living near the red line and how that was like a convenience. What's your experience with, in terms of people wanting to take the metro or taking the metro yourself in terms of those factors that Scott just mentioned? Um, I hear from people that it, it, the metro is wonderful if you are going where it goes. Uh, it is overall great for getting people from the periphery of the city to the center of the city. It's like a, like a star. But if you're trying to go side by side to, from one ward to another around the periphery, it's, it's much more difficult. 
I think what Scott was saying was really important that people factor in both money and time. And for a city like the district to have an effective transit system that works for everybody and a world-class transit system, we're going to have to spend money on one thing or another. And, you know, they're, they're with the Metro now because it's, you know, because there are condition problems, it's becoming somewhat less reliable. We're going to have to put money in to make it a functional, usable, efficient system. And do we want to do that? Or do we want to put more money into widening the beltway, widening roads, building more parking lots? And, you know, then let's think about the climate and our, you know, our air quality. And we have to weigh that as well. Now, you mentioned the Beltway, and when I looked at some of these studies saying that D.C. had the worst traffic in the United States, they were talking about commuter traffic, you know. So uh, a lot of that traffic is out on the Beltway, kind of circling the district. How much does that traffic out there on the Beltway, you know, outside the district, affect the, the air quality inside the district? I'd like to offer a key concept, and Scott, if you've got actual facts, then so much the better. You've heard the concept of watershed, something that goes into the water, be it in a little stream or, you know, into a river, it ends up in our drinking water. It ends up in the whole watershed. What we have also is is an airshed. And when there's bumper-to-bumper traffic on the Beltway, when there are tons of cars on the road, and especially if they're not fuel-efficient cars, but when there are tons of cars on the road, when they're running slowly, when they're getting stopped, you know, because of heavy traffic, because of accidents, or closer into the city because of, of traffic lights, wherever those emissions take place, the whole entire bowl of D.C., is going to be subjected to, to smog. Barbara's absolutely right that the airshed is, is the key concept, especially with regard to air quality and health impacts and other air quality impacts that you might be worried about with regard to commuting. You know, the D.C. area is one airshed. And so, you know, while it's always bad to live right next to a toll booth in terms of immediate nearby air quality, the entire region does suffer from the volume of traffic that is throughout. And I don't think there's any one place where the traffic is sort of separately very pleasant uh, in this region. So we're all definitely encountering the overall volume. I looked at, I I guess it was, I thought it was a newer report, but it was actually 2011, the Urban Mobility Report, the same report by the Texas Transportation Institute. It seemed to indicate that a robust economy led to more congestion in cars because people, in essence, could afford to pollute more, you know, with these single occupancy, you know, car trips. And, you know, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Uh, I can start with Barbara and then go to Scott. Sure. Um, A robust economy is what we want. We want a lot of people with jobs that pay decently so that they have more choices about, you know, what they buy, how they use their money, and how they, how they transport themselves. So we want that. But that means there will be more people moving from place to place. And then we need to make choices to, you know, to, to optimize what it's like in the city. If we have a rotten public transportation system 
then people are going to want to use cars. And notice the study that you cited came from Texas where they have a lousy, much terrible public transportation system where there is any at all. So right. if you've got a lousy transportation system, people are going to want to use cars. If you have, and, and we have an advantage there. We've got overall, certainly in the United States by comparison to other cities, a really good public transportation system. We can take our advantage and use it and make it better so that public transportation becomes the best way to get around. That means that we can be faster because there won't be all that traffic on the roads. We can be safer because we'll want to walk and bike. Um, we'll be healthier because if you walk, you're healthier than if you take a car. And we'll be doing our share for the environment because all those cars on the road, all that transit on the road increases emissions, period. And if you're walking, biking, or using public transport, you're using a lot less emissions. Scott, did you want to add something? Yeah, I would just sort of put to foot a very fine point on what Barbara said. The classic phrase that I think people in, from this perspective tend to keep shouting is, if you build it, they will come. Uh, and that refers to transportation infrastructure. Uh, we tend to talk about people's driving behavior in a vacuum, that they respond to how much money they have, they respond to whether or not they have a job. But really, when you talk about how driving volume expanded over the course of, let's say, the entire second half of the 20th century, it did so in combination with a massive expansion of the interstates this new concept that the interstate system would become useful for, tr for commuter travel within cities or between suburbs and downtowns. Uh, you know, these were major policy decisions. These, these were decisions by people to build roads rather than other modes. Uh, that had an awful lot to do with why the travel volume by cars went up so fast, whereas transit systems really did not grow uh, with any kind of anything like the same speed. And so, you know, we see that around the world where very good transit systems are, are covering very large shares of a given urban area and providing high-quality service, we see that the ridership is high. And if you consider an area like Atlanta, which has very poor transit for a very large area, uh, it has correspondingly very high car traffic and congestion uh, by comparison to a city like New York, which has far more developed transit. Uh, the congestion is, is so bad, but the travel volume is spread out over many more modes, and as a result, you get you know less less of a sort of a brutal re reputation for for being a congested urban area. On that note, Scott, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back.
Sisters is on the ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Barbara Briggs, environmental advocate with the D.C. Climate Coalition, and Scott Williamson, policy analyst with the Center for Climate Strategies, on the topic, what if Metro was free? Metro is the subway or or mass transit system here in D.C., just like the New York subway or the the BART in Oakland. So Metro is our subway. I realized that when you, you mentioned the you know, modes of travel and the choices, that kind of gets back to my, I guess, premise for doing the interview, which is to propose this idea of, like, what if Metro was free? And, and I came to this idea because of looking at several studies happening in Europe where cities were either experimenting with the idea of with uh, you know no fare for transit or a very reduced fare uh, to help them meet emissions goals. How do you think that that would impact the goal here to reduce car use? I think it's a, it's definitely an interesting idea, and the people that you're going to reach with this idea are those who have a choice of mode and who are somewhat sensitive to the cost. Uh, there are some people who are extremely sensitive to cost already, and they're already making the cheapest choice, which is probably transit. And then you have those who, for whatever reason, have become hardened against transit or simply are nowhere near it, who will probably... at no price, whether it's zero or anything else, are not likely to take a transit trip uh, for whatever reason. Um, but there are some people out there, uh, and D.C. has some of them, I'm sure, who would make that shift and did make that shift from gas prices spiked. So I think you could look to that as a sort of a natural mm-hmm. experiment that would tell you about how effective a major change in the transit fee would be. But again, this goes back to a point that Barbara made a little while ago, which is that D.C. transit access is at a real premium. We are not well covered by what I'd like to call high-quality transit. You can get a bus most places, but you can't get a fast, reliably quick trip on rail, let's say, or on a dedicated lane bus uh, in most places. And it's so significantly at a premium that if you live anywhere near a metro stop in this region – your property value is probably something like $100,000 higher than if you did not live near that. So the value is extremely high. The access is very limited. And so one of the ironic problems might be that the people most able to take transit are the ones least in need of a subsidized fare because they're the ones who are already capable of living near high-quality transit as it is. So uh, I guess finally, uh, I wanted to ask about uh, how this, these factors or these issues are changing um, with the younger generation. Uh, it occurs to me that many young people living, especially if they live in the city, uh, or even if they, they, the priority is to be near the metro, uh, and many don't have cars. So how do these subjects change when we start talking about I assume millennials, but, you know, even even older than millennials in terms of these issues. Barbara. I think that, you know, what we're seeing in the future is more like what you were talking about, you know, European cities that are pretty far ahead of us in terms of establishing safe bike lanes. 
DC is is overall great for biking in terms of its geography. It's not like Pittsburgh that's got super steep hills and ridges. And the more we build bike lanes, the more we make it safe, the more people will be able to use that really healthy mode of transportation. The other thing we need to do is upgrade the metro and upgrade those bus systems so that you know, wards seven and eight are adequately served. And so that if you want to get, for instance, uh, from ward three to ward four, it doesn't take more than an hour by bus when it's only 20 minutes by bike. But if it's raining, you want to use a bus. So having a really solid, good, robust transit system is like uh, Scott said, if you build it, they will come and we'll have a much healthier system uh, city because of it. Okay, and Scott, do you uh, how, how do you see the kind of younger generation that I think that the car ownership among this gener- younger generation is dropping or far less than than what it is for older generations. I think I have that right. Yeah, I, I believe that's right as well. We're at a confluence right now of a lot of really interesting factors all coming together at once total amount of driving in this country hasn't really grown in the last 15 years. For the longest time, the amount of driving grew steadily every year. And then shortly before, you know, basically with the gas price spikes in the mid-2000s, that leveled off and it has never really grown since. We're also seeing that the price of a new vehicle is going up and up and that more and more people who are buying cars are having to do so on loans between five and seven years of length. The seven-year car loan is a new phenomenon, which is indicating the unaffordability of cars to an awful lot of people um, as they extend out that financing, pay more for it. We're also seeing, particularly in urban areas, we're seeing a lot of really interesting disruption, Uh, a lot of it controversial, but still very interesting. You see different transportation, uh, a lot more shared modes with Uber and Lyft and other car sharing. Um, Bike sharing has been going through rapid gyrations as docked bike systems were built only a few years ago. They were the wave of the future, and they've, you know, this wave of, of dockless bike share companies has come in. Scooters are coming in. You really have this sense that particularly younger transportation users are making better and better use of every new option that comes in. They clearly have an appetite for each new option that comes in. But I think it's clear we won't be it. We can't say now what's going to be the favored mix, even five years down the line. Um, Infrastructure still has an awful lot to do with it. I wouldn't oversell a generational cultural shift here. We still need to build the infrastructure for people to get around safely and quickly uh, for them to make that choice. So that comes first. But at the same time, we're not looking at a bunch of people who are stuck on the idea that they need to drive a car 45 minutes to their three-car garage at home. Okay. All right. Um, did either of you want to add anything that I didn't ask on this subject or have some closing remarks? Maybe just one random thing. Um, note that the Metro works on electricity, and DC buses are beginning to be electrified as well. Um, if and when we pass the DC uh, clean energy bill, uh, more and more of that electricity will be from renewables. 
So coal-fired plants in Ohio and Pennsylvania whose emissions are now in the airshed and coming across D.C. and the Chesapeake Bay, um, you know, that those will begin to close down. So you really get like a double good thing. You're not only using less cars that are emitting less, but the transit system, the metro itself, will be cleaner and cleaner. And Scott? I would just offer that there's, the more I think about transit, particularly in a town of like D.C., which has such a haves and haves not dynamic, uh, the more I see transit as an equity issue. And the access to transit really is getting dialed more and more exclusively to those who are well off uh, and able to afford the property that's nearby it. Um, now, we have various mechanisms of protecting that, that problem. We, we can create affordable housing, and we do uh, quite well in a lot of places. But at the same time, you know, transit access is very attractive, and money will follow it. So as you treat this issue, I think it's also important to think about expanding that access in order to reduce that sort of rarity premium so that you can actually get more people more broadly able to access good transit. And once they do that, it makes it very much easier to get them out of cars. Even if they don't stop owning the vehicle, they stop driving it as often. You have been listening to Scott Williamson, policy analyst with the Center for Climate Strategies, and also Barbara Briggs, environmental advocate with the D.C. Climate Coalition. And while D.C. and other municipalities must rely on better federal policies and funding to improve public transportation, to possibly make it free one day, and reduce cars on the road, Many cities like D.C. do have more control over the development of clean energy to generate electricity and move away from oil and gas. On Monday, September 24th, the D.C. Climate Coalition is holding a press conference with D.C. Councilmember Mary Che to rally support for the Clean Energy D.C. Plan, which we will discuss next time on our next installment of D.C. in the Era of Climate Change. Well, for this week, Resi at the Tacoma Park Metro Station will have the last word. Do you think Metro is expensive? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Because normally on the, I take it off. I don't, I don't take it every day, but I spend almost like 250 minimum a month. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is expensive when it comes to the money that we make every month. Right. <laughs> Do you think that more people would take the train if it was free? Most definitely, everybody loves free stuff. And that will do it for today's show. Our series, DC in the Era of Climate Change, is supported by a grant from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. A special thank you to my guests today, Tyson Slocum, Barbara Briggs, and Scott Williamson. And thanks to our contributors, Gerald Horn, Chantel James, and Lydia Curtis. The music we play this hour included Jelly's The Beaner by Robert Glasper. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you're a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with the green letters that say on the ground. 
We're also on Twitter and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW on the ground. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.